0: but for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning, New Life. How are we doing this morning? Anybody else excited to be in church this morning? Yes, man. I love I love gathering together uh, to worship Jesus as a community. Uh, we're in week two of our Christmas series, and just in case nobody told you, it is Christmas time right now. And so naturally, we thought we'd talk about prison during Christmas time. Like you do. And so we're in week two of this series called The Captive Liberator. And the whole premise of this series is that we believe that the at the core of the Christmas story is that Jesus, that God in the form of Jesus, became a person and uh, dwelt among us. And in many ways, He is our captive liberator. He became a captive on our behalf to offer us a path to freedom. And so that's really the premise of the series that we're in right now. And uh, today what I want to talk about is I want to talk about what I believe is one of the most challenging aspects of the Christian faith. In fact, I would argue it's one of the most misunderstood aspects of the Christian faith, not because it's hard to understand, it's actually pretty simple to understand, but because everything in us wants to push in the opposite direction. Today, I want to challenge our notions on this idea of grace. Today, we're talking about grace, what it is, what it isn't, and how it actually changes our lives. And so, one thing you need to know about me is... Before I ever knew that I wanted to be a pastor, I actually had a dream of becoming a lawyer. I don't know who dreams about becoming a lawyer, but I I did. And uh, so ever since I was in high school, I've been so interested just around the court process and the legal proceedings and what trials look like and, and things like that. And so I watch trials. It's like in my spare time, I just watch, I don't know why I do this, but uh, one that I've been really interested in over the last couple months is uh, the trial of um, Darrell Brooks. Anybody else watch this trial at all over the last couple months? A few of us. Maybe you've seen some clips and stuff from it. I am ashamed to say I've watched about 80% of this one month long trial. Uh, I just like streamed it and binged it um, and, and, This guy, if if you're not familiar with who he is, he's actually the guy who drove his SUV through the Waukesha Christmas Parade last November, um, uh, 2021. And just a devastating story. Uh, Killed six people, injured dozens and dozens others. I mean, it's just a a heart-wrenching, ugly story. And uh, his trial happened over the last couple months and it lasted for a good long while. And uh, one of the reasons why this trial got so much attention was was because of this guy right here, Darrell Brooks. In fact, he decided that he was going to represent himself, that he was going to fire his legal team and represent himself. And this trial over these four weeks essentially became this kind of clown show of just like outrageousness and, and things like that. I mean, at one point during the trial, he's got his shirt off. At another point, he builds a fort out of the boxes to hide his view from the judge, right? He objects to every single question that the prosecution asks. I mean, this guy is just making a mockery of the whole trial. And there were times when I watched it where it was actually like pretty funny and entertaining to watch until you remembered what he was actually on trial for, right? I mean, this profoundly serious ugly situation and it wasn't until really for me the the victim impact statements after he's already been found guilty I mean it was pretty much an open and shut case nobody had really any doubt of his innocence or guilt but it was in this moment where the victim impact statements I mean dozens of people one after another started sharing how his actions his recklessness had really devastated their lives And I'll never forget the moment when the judge handed down the sentences after these victim impact statements. This guy was charged with 76 different criminal counts, found guilty of all of them, including six first-degree murders. And uh, this judge was a saint, by the way, but one by one, she reads his sentences to him. And this is what she says. She says, you are sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Literally, one by one, she would read the victim's name. You are sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Without the possibility of parole. This statement over and over again, without the possibility of parole, was spoken over this guy's life. All in all, he had six life sentences and 762 additional years in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, I think all of us in here would argue that is a just sentence for him. But can you imagine what that would feel like to have that spoken over you without the possibility of parole? Like like you're imprisoned and there is nothing you can do on your own to secure any kind of freedom for yourself. Nothing you'll ever be able to do, no matter how well you behave, no matter what merits you stand on, there is nothing you will be able to do to parole yourself, to get out of the prison that you find yourself in without the possibility of parole. I can't imagine a sentence or something spoken over my life that would be any more suffocating or hopeless. There's nothing, no option for upward mobility, no option for freeing yourself, just just a death sentence, essentially, I would feel utterly trapped in this situation without the possibility of parole. I have to imagine that there's some of us who have situations that we're in right now where we feel trapped. Right? Maybe you feel trapped in a toxic relationship. Maybe you feel trapped in a job situation that you don't really have any options to get out of. Maybe you feel trapped in an addiction right now. Or trapped in a downward spiral or cycle. Now imagine in that moment you hear the words you are trapped and there is no possibility of parole. Here's what most of us don't realize. Those words without the possibility of parole have already been spoken over every single person in this room. Those words Without the possibility of parole, have already been spoken by God, who is the righteous judge, the only righteous judge over every single person, myself included. He has already spoken that over your life. But here's the question that I want to ask today What if this is the best possible place to be with God? What if without the possibility of parole is not bad news when God speaks it over our life? What, did it, what if it, without the possibility of parole is the only path that any of us have to experience freedom from the prison of sin that we live in? Now, I realize, and I knew when I was writing this, this is a heavy introduction. Merry Christmas, you filthy animals. <laughs> Right? Like I get, <clears throat> this is a heavy introduction, but here's what I want to show you. I want to show you that, that without the possibility of parole, even though that has been spoken over every single one of our lives, it is the only place where freedom is actually found. And so here's what I want to do is show you that today. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to Ephesians 2 with me. Ephesians 2 uh, chapter or verses one through three, and uh, this is a guy named Paul. He's a famous church leader, and he's writing this to Gentile Christians in a in a metropolis called Ephesus. So this is a big city that he's writing to, and these are new converts to the Christian faith. Okay, so these are itty little baby Christians here that he's writing this to, and this is what he says to the Gentile Christians. He's a Jewish guy. He's writing to Gentiles. This is what he says: "And you, as in all of you Gentiles." So he opens this with the same heaviness that I come to you with here this morning, that that according to Paul, we are dead because of our sins. In other words, we were created by God to reflect God in the world. We were created as image bearers to carry God's presence and his goodness and his power into this world. And yet because of sin, Paul says that we are spiritually dead. In other words, this is a sentence without the possibility of parole, right? We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And what he does here is he goes after behavior language, right? He's saying, you do these things, and that only serves to illustrate how dead you actually once were. In fact, the the people that Paul is writing to I mean, this was a people that knew the passions of the flesh, which is something that Paul describes here. A couple examples of the way they lived is they once would have worshipped many different pagan idolatrous gods. It was a polytheistic culture, so many gods. They would have partaken in things like witchcraft, sorcery, those types of things in this Gentile world of Ephesus they would have gone to the temple to hire prostitutes and participated in temple prostitution. And so when Paul is writing to this group of people, he's writing to some pretty bad hombres here, some people who knew what it meant to live according to the passions of the flesh. He's using behavioral language to illustrate how spiritually dead people actually are, how enslaved they are to their sin without the possibility of parole. Dead things cannot bring themselves back to life, right? This is what Paul is getting at here. And what so many of us do when we're faced with this idea of life without the possibility of parole or a prison sentence that our behavior has earned us the natural kind of human response to this is, well, if I just change the behavior, I'll change the prison sentence, right? I can free myself from the prison by changing my behavior. It is a parole based attitude that we tend to have. And if you're unsure, like maybe you're thinking to yourself, this isn't really something I do. Look around our culture, right? We live in, even in secular culture, there is such a behavior based morality right now, parole-based attitude if you think about it, right? If, if I don't say the right things or do the right things or believe the right things in the culture that we find ourselves in right now, we're quick to cast people aside. We're quick to cancel them. We're quick to label them phobic. We're, we're quick to do all of these things that cast people aside, Right? We live in an atonement culture that is super high on atonement, meaning you're gonna pay for your sins, you're gonna pay for your behaviors, but super low on grace. I'm gonna say a name that's gonna trigger some of us right now. Brittany Griner is case in point. She deserved what she got. Kyle Rittenhouse is another one, right? We'd we lob the left and the right constantly back and forth about what is deserved and what ought to be paid for. And we live in this super, super high atonement culture. And here's the thing. I believe in accountability when we've hurt people. Like that's an important principle, right? We all should believe in accountability when people get hurt. Amen. There should be consequences for behaviors. The problem though right now when I look at our world, if I can just make an observation, is that our cultural discourse right now is completely devoid of grace, and it's completely filled with just a behavior modification attitude right now. Change the behaviors, change the outcome. There is no path to reconciliation between people without changing behaviors. You wonder if we live in a behavior, merit-based, parole-based world right now, just turn on the news for five minutes and what you're going to see is just people lobbying accusations against each other, right? Comparing one sinner to another sinner. Like if if I just point out your transgressions and your sins, I can somehow not look at my own, right? Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change himself. We have a, a pesky little elf that visits our house every single day. Anybody else have one of these elves that come and visit and watch your kids? Right? Our, our elf's name is Blitzen. Some of you are like, no, no, no. Uh, our elf's name is Blitzen. And uh, he comes, and this little elf is a menace, okay? So he'll come in, and he'll just do all kinds of naughty stuff. When he's at our house, I mean, he'll pour out sprinkles on the countertop and make snow angels in them, and he'll like get all of our gift wrap out and you know throw bows everywhere and make mess of tape and swing from light fixture, all kinds of stuff he does. But what is his one job that he's there to do? He's there to report on my kid's behavior to the big guy in the North Pole, right? And so He sees my kid's behavior as he's doing all of this naughty stuff. And then he goes and tells on them to Santa Claus, a morally bankrupt elf is reporting my kid's morality to the big guy. How twisted is that concept? And yet, that's exactly the world that we live in right now. A merit-based world always operates on comparing one sinner to another sinner. Are you worse than that person? Are you better than that person? Comparison says be like everyone else, but be better than them. Right? I think of the, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 where he observes a a tax collector and a Pharisee. And on one hand, you have a Pharisee, and he is the picture of morality. He is the picture of behavior-based perfection. Okay, you have this Pharisee, and then on the other hand, you have this tax collector. And this tax collector is this picture of immorality, right? He sold out his own people to make money off of them. He's just kind of lowest scum in their culture, And what do you do is you have this Pharisee, and what he's doing is he's comparing one sinner to another, and he says, God, thank you that you did not make me like this tax collector. He is the scum of the earth, right? That's what we do. Then Jesus says, you have this tax collector falling on his knees, looking up to heaven and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God doesn't compare one sinner to another. God compares all sinners to his son. And when that comparison is made, (laughs) I'll just start with me. I fall woefully short. I fall woefully short. My behavior, my merit based, parole based attitude looks like filthy rags compared to that of Jesus. Are there areas of your life where you are comparing your behavior to others? Jesus says that's essentially what withholding forgiveness from somebody looks like. You're just setting yourself up on a higher tribunal than they are. That's what it looks like when there's unrepentant sin that is lingering in our lives and our hearts and we're quick to call out the sins in other people. That's what it looks like when there's an unrighteous anger that brews within us, needing to have the final word or always prove our point to be heard That's what it looks like when we compare one sinner to another sinner, these horizontal comparisons. And what I love about Paul here, this is just so brilliant, and it's a subtle piece of the language here in Ephesians 2 that's easy to miss. But in the first two verses, he starts and he uses you language, like you Gentiles did this, you did this, you did this, right? It sounds initially like horizontal comparison, but then he slightly shifts the language in verse 3, and he says, among whom we all... Once lived, Jews and Gentiles alike falling woefully short of the glory of God, imprisoned by our sin with no possibility of parole. In other words, you have no path to freedom on your own. Dead things cannot bring themselves back to life. However, the next two words in this chapter of Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4, are some of the most powerful words that you will ever find in the scriptures. And they happen often. These words have the power to change everything, starting in verse 4. But God. But God. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. By what? Grace. One more time. By what? Grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then the famous verses from Ephesians 2, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen. If you want to stick it, to this world. (laughs) If you want to live contrary to the desires of your flesh, the stuff that you do that you know you don't want to do, if you want freedom, if you want to move from death to life, there is one way that that happens. We embrace costly grace. We embrace costly grace. That's it. I mean, last week we talked about this whole idea of boasting, right? Paul says that it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In 2 Corinthians 12, what does Paul say the only thing we boast in is? Our weaknesses. Well, we don't boast in our behaviors. We don't boast in the things that prop us up. We only boast in the things that prop Jesus up on a pedestal, because it is by grace you have been saved through faith. But costly grace is scandalous in a parole-based world. Costly grace is one of the most scandalous words to a parole-based world. Why? Because it's the opposite of parole. Costly grace is the opposite of parole. So what does any of this have to do with baby Jesus and the Christmas story? It has everything to do with it. You see, Jesus is God's gift of grace to the world. He is grace in living, breathing human flesh. You see, cheap grace, cheap grace doesn't do much at all to transform us. Going back to our prison cell analogy, this is what cheap grace looks like. Cheap grace is here I am, I'm sitting in my prison cell and Jesus comes in and he sits next to me in the cell, and he pats me on the back, and he says, you know, you're not as bad as they say you are. I think you're a pretty good guy. For some of us, we have reduced God's grace down to this idea that it just helps us feel better about ourselves, not realizing that we are still in a locked prison cell in our sin. But costly grace, costly grace is Jesus someone who is innocent coming into our cell, sitting next to us and saying, yeah, you kind of suck sometimes. I'm just going to be honest, right? I mean, some of us just need to hear that. We kind of suck sometimes, okay? I do. Don't say amen too loud to that, okay? I'm just kidding. However, and this is where Jesus' grace is really costly. However, I'm going to take your place in this prison cell. The door is open. My son, my daughter, walk in freedom. I have taken your place in this cell. At great cost to himself, He entered our prison cell and offers us a path to freedom. This is the heart of the Christmas story. In fact, as you read the Christmas story in the Gospels, Luke 2 is a great place to start. What you see over and over and over again is these celebrations and these songs and these praises offered to God because he is a merciful God who is bringing salvation to Israel and salvation to the world. Through the person of Jesus. It radiates through every celebration, every announcement of Jesus coming that he is a merciful God. Now, grace and mercy are words that I think are virtually interchangeable with each other. They're two sides of the same coin with one kind of key difference. Does anybody know what the difference between grace and mercy is? Grace is giving me something I don't deserve, it is a gift that I don't deserve right? Mercy is not giving me something that I do deserve. Does that distinction make sense? Grace is a free gift that I don't deserve. Mercy is like allowing a criminal to not be turned in, right? It's not giving me something that I do deserve. And so when Mary hears about the arrival of Jesus coming into this world, her song says this, I, she praises God and says that the arrival of Jesus is evidence of God's mercy from generation to generation, that he has remembered his mercy to unfaithful Israel. Amen. When we are unfaithful, God is faithful. Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, hears from God in a dream that he should name the baby Jesus Why? Because the very name Jesus means salvation. He will save and rescue his people from their sins. He is the gift of God, the gift of grace given to us in flesh and bones. When their cousin law Zechariah, prophesies about his son John the Baptist's life and Jesus' work here on earth, these are the words Zechariah uses. He says, God has visited and redeemed his people. That the tender mercy of God is like a sunrise for those who sit in darkness, who sit in the shadow of death. My friends, costly grace is scandalous in a merit based world, and it's countercultural. I mean, just think about this season. So much time and effort and money and energy is spent in this season on behavior modification, right? He's making a list, checking it twice. Gonna find out who's naughty and right. If you behave, you get the presence. If you misbehave, you get the coal. My kids are getting coal this year. I'm just saying. No, I'm just kidding. Oops. Right? That's so counterintuitive to the gospel and the way that God gives gifts. He gives gifts to people who deserve coal. In C.S. Lewis, famous author and theologian, once said that there is one defining mark that separates Christianity from every other world thought pattern, every other major religion, and he boiled it down to one word, grace. Grace is what sets the Jesus story apart from every other story. The notion that a God or a deity, that his love would come to us at cost and sacrifice to himself seems to go against every instinct that we have as human beings. It goes against the Buddhist eightfold path. It goes against the Hindu doctrine of karma, right? What goes around comes around. It goes against the Muslim code. It goes against the code of law. It goes against the Jewish covenant. Santa, it goes against him giving gifts to those who are nice. Each of those offers a way to earn approval, a path to parole. But God... Who is rich in mercy because of his great love made us alive in Christ, and there is no space for boasting about parole. See, a lot of us get this wrong when it comes to grace that we believe God's gift of grace is a gift with no strings attached, that he just gives it to you and then it's whatever from there. And a lot of that comes from our Western kind of mindset of gift giving. Right, We believe in our culture that the purest gifts are the ones that are given with no expectation in return or no strings attached. But did you know we're actually in the minority in the world when it comes to giving gifts that way? Like, If you look at just Eastern traditions for for giving gifts and things like that, the expectation is that there are strings attached, that there is something offered in return, and that thing that's offered in return is a relationship. And so Jesus, in his consciousness, in Paul's consciousness, in the first century uh, Greco-Roman world that Paul lived, the idea that you would just give a gift with no strings attached was pretty foreign. That the thing that is returned, or the reciprocity that is returned when a gift is offered is the gift of relationship in return. Right? It's not just a gift with no strings attached. God's grace has strings attached. He wants relationship. He wants to teach you how to walk in freedom as a free person. Paul in Romans 6 says it this way. This isn't even in my notes, but I'm going to just read this right here. I can find it a second. In Romans 6, Paul says this. He says, what shall then we say? God's grace is unconditioned. It's given to everyone who receives it. It is given to the least deserving, but it comes with a response expected from it. That an extravagant gift like God's grace demands an extravagant response. There's an author named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who speaks to this beautifully. He was a Christian who lived in Nazi Germany, and this is what he says. He says, costly grace It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. But above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. I love that he says ye there, bringing in some KJV. Don't miss this next part. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for your life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. God's grace is offered freely to you. Don't make a mistake that it was free to offer. It cost him everything. It cost him his son And what God's costly grace does is it opens the prison cell. He gave you an inheritance and his invitation is how are you going to walk in this newfound freedom? Are you going to just have the prison door cell opened and just return to the old stuff that got you here in the first place? Or by the power of my Holy Spirit advocating for you, walking alongside you, leading you, guiding you, comforting you, like, Being with you, are you going to learn how to walk in an entirely new kind of freedom? I opened the door for you. How are you going to walk out of the cell? And that's what makes the last verse in Ephesians 2, this passage we're reading, make sense. Verse 10, the last one that we'll be in for today, says this, For we are his workmanship. It's the Greek word "poem." We are his masterpiece. You are the crowning achievement of God's creation because you are the only one, we are the only ones as humans who he created to bear his image and carry his goodness into the world. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, when we understand how costly this grace is, we walk in a different way through this world. It changes us, it transforms us, it brings us into a newness of life, a newness of walking in this world. I think one of the most powerful pictures that I've ever seen of this um, laid out is in the musical Les Miserables. Is anybody, any theater ner- nerds in here at all? We got a couple theater nerds. How many of us have ever seen Les Mis before? One of the most beautiful, beautiful pictures of the gospel I've ever seen happens in the beginning of this story. Okay, so here you have this guy named Jean Valjean, right? And he has been a prisoner for 19 years serving a grueling sentence in France for just stealing bread for his starving family. Right, And so he, he finishes serving his prison sentence. He gets out of prison. He's walking in this newfound freedom. But the problem is he can't find any job prospects or any ways to build a new life because nobody wants to hire a prisoner released on parole. Nope. Right? And so with nowhere to go and no other options, he finds himself in basically a parish with a, a bishop in a small French town. Right? This bishop offers him food. He offers him shelter. But what does Valjean do? He steals from him, right? He steals some of this bishop's silver, this guy who was so kind to him. He steals it and he goes on his way. And Valjean, what happens is he's caught by the local authorities for stealing the silver. And he's brought back to the bishop's house by the authorities. And the bishop, in this moment, has a thief who stole from him right in front of him. And he has one of two options. He can condemn the man to life in prison, or he can invite him into a path into freedom. And what does the bishop do? He says the silver was a gift. And the authorities leave. And then he says this to Valjean. He says, Forget not. Never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Not only did he forgive Jean Valjean, he showed him mercy by not turning him into the authorities, the cops, right? That's mercy. But grace is the fact that this bishop gave Jean Valjean the silver to go build a new life with. That, my friends, is the grace of God. That he has opened the prison cell through his son, Jesus Christ, and he has invited us into a whole new way of walking. I've said this before but it is a mistake to think that as you grow spiritually that you need God's grace less and less because you've got it from here, God, thanks. No, growing spiritually is understanding I need God's grace more and more that nothing good comes out of me apart from the grace of God, but but for the grace of God, there go I, right? Like it is God's grace that I'm saved by. It is God's grace that I grow in holiness. It is God's grace that I walk in. Is your life marked by grace or is Jesus just giving you warm butterflies as you sit in your sin God's grace invites us to leave some things behind and the expectation that's attached to it is that by the power of the Holy Spirit we become people of radical grace and mercy towards each other that we grow in holiness that we walk with Jesus and leave behind the desires of the flesh. Costly grace always transforms us. It changes us. It makes us new. And so as we close today, I I just want to ask this question in closing here. How do I embrace costly grace? How do I embrace this kind of grace? The answer is really simple, but it's not easy. Here's how we do it. We die every day in order to live. We make the choice every single day to die to ourselves, to die to our desires, to die to our agendas, to die to our selfishness, to die to the direction that our minds and our hearts and our bodies naturally want to go. And we practice this idea of repentance. And repentance means to turn around and go a different direction. It is a simple concept. God is over here, right? And my sin causes me to want to walk this way. But embracing grace says, no, I am going to return to the Father, I am going to walk back home to the Father's arms, who is waiting for me. To embrace this, my friends, is where transformation happens. That I walk back to Him in repentance. Costly grace transforms lives. Amen. I've seen it happen so many times. Think of Jason's story, who we just shared this last week on our podcast, who literally has a Jean Valjean story, where he, you know, stole from his employers. And it was the kindness of his employers to not press charges and to walk with him and to help him find a church. That costly grace on their part changed that guy's life. And to this day, he's redoing their, remodeling their bathroom. It's a beautiful story. I've seen it transform birth parents in the foster system. The number of letters that I've written to expunge records so that birth parents whose kids were once taken away in the foster system can go experience and build a new life. We literally have birth parents that we have worked with that are now foster care workers in the same system that took their kids at one point. Why? Because costly grace transforms us. There's just something that changes in us when we are offered grace in a way that comes at great cost to somebody else. I've seen this costly grace transform families marriages and whole communities question for you is are you willing to die to yourself to let it transform you so here's how I want to close today I'm going to read um, from actually the message paraphrase Isaiah 53 and this is the verse that the verses that were on the screen before I came up and we're going to respond in uh, an attitude and a posture of worship And so what I want to do is I just want to invite you to stand right now where you are. And uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to read these verses over you guys, over me, over my life. And as I read them, what I want you to consider, what I want you to think about is how costly this grace actually was. Don't think for a second that the Christmas story did not cost God greatly. It is costly grace that transforms. So let me read this over you. He, Jesus, was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered, like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried, and he was let off. And did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten bloody for the sins of my people. They buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man, even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one thing that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he'd see life come from it. Life, life, and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. This, my friends, is costly grace.